Episode 57, All About Love. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. Today's episode is all about love. This special edition of the podcast is our final episode of 2022. And today we are revisiting our conversations with 13 of our guests from this year as they illustrate what happens when you lead with love. Our guests not only talk about romantic love, but also highlight what it means to be madly in love with the work that you do, what it can teach us about ourselves, and how important it is to fall head over heels for the process. We will close today's episode with the kind of love that they imagine for the future. As you know, we always start our conversations by asking our guests, who would they like to dedicate the conversation to? What we love, no pun intended, is that they always take a thoughtful beat before responding. From Beth Ann Hardison to Rita Dove, you feel the warmth as you hear their voice go up and down an octave. Although just a brief moment, that's when you can feel that love has entered the room. We begin with dedications from Grammy Award-winning singer and songwriter Estelle, chef and activist Zoe Ajonio, preacher and scholar Ebony Marshall Terman, choreographer and dancer Bill T. Jones, and last but not least, culinary entrepreneur John Gray of Ghetto Gastro. They remind us of their why as we open the floodgates to allow love to flow freely through the conversation. And without further ado, we'd like to dedicate today's conversation to you the listener, and welcome you to the Institute of Black Imagination. Oh, wow. Um, I would like to dedicate this conversation to uh, anyone that's coming up behind me, anyone that's coming up at the same time as me, anybody who needs um, some kind of grounding, some kind of idea as to how to do this. This is, I guess, this is what this is for. So, yeah. Well, you know, I mentioned them earlier, and I think I said this before as well, but this is going to be another ancestral lens. Um, I think I chose my grandmother the last time, but I'm open to widening that up to all my ancestors, actually, on both my lineages, because um, this is a new space for me, the the concept of connecting with ancestry in a more spiritual way. Um, and there is a new moon today. There's a new energy. And for the last 24, 48 hours, my, I feel like my ancestors have been trying to send me messages about what's next for me. So yeah, that's who I'm going to dedicate this one to, I think. That is a question that I am not often asked, but the first persons who came to mind um, are my daughters who are two years old and um, they're, they're twins. And 
you know, I dedicated my book to my brothers. And I'm, of course, always thinking my first book to my brothers. And my next book, the book I'm working on, is uh, dedicated to my, well, it's dedicated to mom and them. So my mother's broadly construed. Um, and I haven't, I mean, they've only been here for two years, but I haven't had an opportunity to dedicate anything to them. And so because I imagine, I mean, we're talking about imagination today, because I imagine that um, so much of my work going forward will be not only for them in an explicit way, but for building a better world for Black people, for Black women um, and for Black children, I think whatever we talk about today has to be for them, you know? And so, yeah, my girls, Harlem and crew. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Okay, Harlem and crew come through. Uh, Who would I like to dedicate it to? That's an interesting one. Two minds came up. First is Arnie Zane, um, the... Jewish-Italian man who I uh, saw across the room at the university pub at the State University of New York at Binghamton when I was a 19-year-old, just there as a freshman, Jeremy Hendrick wannabe. And this is somebody who uh, actually uh, saw me and um, felt what I needed in a way that I didn't. The second one, I suppose, would be my nephew, Lance Theodore Briggs, uh, he was born in 1970. He is my, as you know, I come from a family of 12 children. I'm number 10. Number nine is Lance's mother, whose name is uh, Vilina, who would, uh, she took on the name of Jahari. But uh, Lance was one boy in a family of five girls, and he was, he admired his Uncle Bill because he wanted to be an artist. Now, what he thought art was, he and I, uh, unfortunately started that discussion a little too late. Um, so he, uh, he died about um, soon to be two years ago. He was a beautiful young guy. He was a model. He was a talented dancer. I think he could have been a, a choreographer. He um, was a sex worker and um, he had a serious drug issues and he died uh, uh, barely 50 years old. So um, I'm th- those two men, Arnie Zane, my companion, my first companion um, out of three, and uh, Lance Theodore Briggs, my uh, young nephew, nephew who has left this planet. I want to dedicate this conversation to my niece, Samaya, um, who recently moved in with me. And we had a great conversation yesterday. Uh, and she challenged me and I was like, you know, sometimes we want to close our ears to the youth, like especially like when you're in a, when they're like your niece or like, you know, it's kind of like a parental type thing, but she came to me and she really opened my mind. So I'll, I'll, I'll give it, I'll give this episode, I'll dedicate this episode to her about things I want to change about myself and how I live. So, In this segment, we explore five conversations that range from what it means to be madly in love with the work you do describing what love feels like and allows for, and how important it is to fall head over heels for the process. We begin with a conversation from episode 37 with fiber artist and storyteller Bisa Butler. In her episode, we speak about her upbringing and how she arrived at finding her niche. In that conversation, we asked her who was the one 
of the first people to affirm her existence in an art practice. But speaking about just like affirming young people and really seeing them thrive, like, mm-hmm. you know, you had a really early start in, in, in art. Like who, who was one of the first people to affirm your, your existence in, in, in an art practice? I mean, really, it was, I can't remember a moment, to be honest, that people were not telling me that my art was good. Like, I remember um, Artist of the Month back in 1977. I think I must have been like four or something. But I remember that. I remember feeling so proud. And when the month changed, they had like a bulletin board, the name changed. And I remember like the horror because I didn't understand months when we're talking about time. A four-year-old doesn't understand when the month is over. So I'm like, why is my name not? I couldn't read the other name, but I knew it wasn't mine anymore. I thought I was artist of the school for life. Like, what? <laughs> why is it a different name up there? <laughs> so <laughs> I just always felt like that. And that this was um, full 70s, deep 70s mode. So my mother would take us to like, we went to an ERA like Equal Rights Amendment camp. It was like for families and was women centered and they had like this whole art um they had like a whole art facility but I always thought that I was the best artist but people would tell me that but I was like a a little kid I'm pretty sure they tell all the kids that that their drawings are real but I took it like I thought it was for real so maybe my drawings were better than the other little kids or not I have no idea but I don't remember never feeling that and um, at Howard, there were so many talented people. I mean, to the left of me would be, and the right were people way more talented in painting. So I did feel at that, at that time, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with art because this is not it. I had this good friend, Jamila, and she had the beautiful line. Her brushwork was like, I don't know, like 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 a Japanese writer, you know, very, very beautiful writing, but she was painting. And I knew that I didn't have that. And then somebody else next to me might have been like an incredible drafts person. And I was like, what is it? And so it, I didn't figure it out until after I got out of Howard. Howard didn't offer fibers as a course. There was no like quilt making or anything like that. Howard wanted to have a very black curriculum in one sense, but they wanted to take what the European art movement had and do it better or do it more or do it um, with a more um, African centered origin, but still doing the same things. They weren't like going to have a class on kente weaving, like because that wouldn't be offered in the Sorbonne or something like that. And so I did it afterwards in grad school at Montclair State. There was a women, a women-run um, collective that started the fibers program and insisted any student who graduated from art with an art degree, whether it was education or studio. Um, sculpture, photography, you had to take fiber arts. 
So I had to take it retroactively because I didn't have that from Howard. And that's when I made my first quilt. They had us weaving and knitting and felting. At that moment was when I was like, this is it. The fibers, it was the studio, it was the warmth. It was being in the company of mostly women, which I didn't know I was responding to intellectually. I just knew that I felt at home there. The stacks, instead of stacks of books, they would just be cones and cones of thread, like lamb's lamb's wool thread and acrylic thread. It was a whole room that must have been maybe, I don't even know, but it was just rows and rows and rows of cones. And it made me feel that this place is where I fit. And that's when I made my first portrait quilt. It was just an example. It was a sample for class. And I was like, this is it. Like, I can make art. I can make portraits. I can sew, which I love to do. I can use African fabric, which I grew up around and I love and I wear. Um, And I can quilt. I don't have any evidence that my ancestors were quilters, but I think they had to have been. They had to. Or if it's reincarnation, either I was or someone else was. And then my Ghanaian side um, with the kente weaving and the dyeing and the batik cloth, it just, it has to be because the moment it touched, it was like, yes. So I think that there's definitely, there are other forces there. Transitioning from talking about what it means to love what you do, to our conversation in episode 49 with choreographer and dancer Bill T. Jones. In that episode, I ask him about desire, and he shares the life lessons he's learned on the power of love and what it means to be seen. But there was something that you mentioned that um, really tied actually to to Arnie Zane. Um, the teacher... Um, Mary Lee Shaping called you. Mary Lee Shaping, who ch- called you out. Mary, Lee, Mary, Mary. Her Lee. name was Mary Lee Shaping, and she would say, uh, "Jones, cut the crap." Yeah, so she said, "Cut the crap." And when she said that, uh, on my side, it resonates with me because I think, in a way, as also as an artist, I'm kind of always looking for the person who's going to. <laughs> tell me to just shut the fuck up right but but you also want to be you also want to be embraced right that they got to go together yeah you want somebody to, oh, to put you down but they also they love you and care for you so anyways i'm sorry yeah yeah because they see because they see you because right they and see so you. she mm-hmm. she she told you to cut the crap because she knew she saw something in you. She saw something about you, right? And that was a, a moment that pulled you right to the present, right? Mm-hmm, and maybe mm-hmm. maybe shattered a couple of things that uh, you had, a couple of masks, right, that you had been wearing. <laughs> but that is also the same thing that it seems like Arnie Zane did yes. when he looked at you across <laughs> that bar, right? There was another seeing. There was another mm-hmm. cutting of the crap. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe not crap, but so... Well, so there was what, something to it. Was what something. was that feeling, right? Mm. What was that when you saw that look? Well, you know... That I, look. It's a look that continues to, I think, inform... It does. ...the way you move through the world. What was that look? How did well, that feel? Uh, my brother, you're asking me to go all sorts of directions now, but I'm going to say <laughs> that I 
for uh, yes, he did see me. I I didn't know I was out wanting to be seen. <laughs> you know, I didn't know that uh, my eye was looking <laughs> for the answer to what is what is desire. And um, mm. he, so you know, the story goes that night in the pub, and I think this might be following on where you're taking us. Uh, I'm there with my sister-in-law, um, Irish Catholic girl, married to my brother Azel. Um, Azel, who will fit prominently in this story, he was very, very important to me. But um, she and I are in the pub, and I see this guy, and he looks different than other guys on campus. He'd just come back from Amsterdam. He's wearing an uh, antique hand-woven uh, sweater, something out of out of a Hans, Hans, uh, what was it? The, the, the guy in the roller skates? Uh, Hans Brinker. That's a, I'm talking to you. You and I are, our generations are not the same. Anyways, he's, he had this feeling of sophistication because he had just come back from living in Amsterdam. And here he is. And I think, oh, he's probably one of those gays. Nobody used the word gay. I said, he probably is. And, and I thought, well, let me see if I can work it. What, what? You know, I never slept with a man before. I didn't know anything like that. That's not quite true. I had one experience. But so what did I think? I said, oh, okay, you must do something lascivious. So I'm drinking a cup of Schlitz and I, uh, <laughs> I, lick the, I lick the brim of the cup and look him hard in the face. And then, well, okay, there's it. I, I left. <laughs> what do you do? But true to form, this man, Arnie Zane, he, I'm sitting out, and, and this is all in the student union, out uh, waiting for my sister-in-law. She said, you know, there's a guy in there, and he just asked me, who was that guy you were with? I'd like to meet him. So Arnie acted on it. Here I'm doing the acting. I'm doing that. I think this is what you're supposed to do. And he just cut to the chase. So we sat there and we talked, and he said, uh, uh, I, I don't know who said it to whom, but I, I think you're... I, very interesting, and I'd like to sleep with you. You know, this is, we're talking the 60s, 70s, you know, you just cut you a trace around things like sex, and then you get to know each other later, right? Which, <laughs> which will be a problem in gay culture as we know, but that's where it was. And we had a wonderful night. Little did he know that he was, quote, um, taking my virginity. You know, here I am, the, the big black guy and all, but I didn't know what to do, you know? And we... It was the truest kind of lovemaking because it was uh, exploring and finding each other. And what did I do? I put on the music I was listening to at that time. I was listening to Bessie Smith and I was listening to the Rolling Stones and um, the kind of uh, counterculture movement of music of my time, whereas his taste would have been Barbara Streisand or what have you. You know, Jewish Italian mm -hmm. man from, uh, from born in the Bronx, I believe he was. We have this evening together. I know the world has changed. I mean, does that make me now a homosexual? And I, because you know, at that time, you know, you got to realize that Mick Jagger is in performance wearing a dress and there's a kind of, there's a thing called uh, gender fuck, which is coming along the line, which is David Bowie. So there was a, the counterculture for all of its naivete and its bullshit, there was something that I defend, and we see it now being threatened by the Supreme Court, we see this sense of you have a mm. right to do you. As our trans brothers and sisters tell us, child, you do you. Well, the whole 60s in a way was, 
whatever you want, everybody, different strokes for different folks, do what you have to do. And so didn't even have names for it. That is the person who became my partner in life and in art, a person who did have an eye, a person who had taken two degrees, one in art history and one in biology, a person who had lived in Amsterdam and a person who had been in love with a black man before. And it had not been a pretty thing. I mean, I know Walter, if you're listening to this man, yeah, he told me all about you and the white fur coat and so on and how he was so in love <laughs> with you. you know? uh, and you were a dog. I know you were, but I, 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 I feel for you. Anyways, but he had, he brought a lot of things to the relationship that I needed to know. One was, mm. uh, what do you mean you want to go hitchhike to the West Coast again? You want to go look for America, which everybody thought. He said, why don't you go to some place you don't know? Let's go to Europe. Oh, my God, Europe. You mean I could do that? Yeah, you could do it. And uh, yeah, you need some things. You need a birth certificate. You need a passport. And what do you want to do? You say, you're an artist. Well, what is that? You, you've been in high school, in a drama club. But what do you know? What are your skills? So you got to take some classes. You got to see things. So you're right. This was a man that, that, that glance across the room was was potent, and I dare say pregnant in ways that would take me years to understand. He was the right partner. Yes, he loved this body, but he did not fetishize it. It was clean what happened between us. He was not, mm. uh, you know, at that time, and excuse me, mm. I'm, I'm, there's a lot of black and gay content in this, but I'm just letting go, which is where my heart is now. At that time when gay liberation was not, we're talking the early, the 70. Uh, and now the Mattachine Society probably went back to the 30s and there were, the Nancy Rebellion was in the late 19th century in London. But for us in America, uh, Stonewall was 1969. And we're talking, I got to State University of New York at Binghamton in the fall of 1970. I didn't even know Stonewall had happened, but Arnie did. And he knew there was such a thing as political consciousness around one's sexuality. And coupled with the idea that Martin Luther King had said, we will all join hands and we shall overcome and we, 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 oh, wow, this is my feelings for this Jewish-Italian man are just in line with the most progressive ideas in the culture. And I trusted him and I put my money on the right horse. This man died in my arms in our house, in our house, 17 years later. And, uh, and I understood something I had nothing to apologize for. So I, when gay, mm. gay marriage came down the pike, um, I understood gay marriage. I had seen, Arnie had seen Edith and Lon Zane. Um, he was a Catholic, uh, a big um, Italian Catholic man who converted to Judaism because of his love for Edith Zacklin, the, the girl that he was, whose brother was a baseball player. They had, they would not think of it as an interracial relationship, but Jewish, Italian, and they knew what it was like to have to, they even changed their name. He was Zimpano, she was Zacklin. So they went to the phone book and tried to find a name that was not ethnically <laughs> precise. So they, cho mm. they chose Zane. So this is all the atmosphere. This is Arnie. Estella and Gus were, were together for 41 
tumultuous years. They, he married her when she had four children. And they, um, we had an idea, a dream together, you know. Um, so I, we had the model of couples that worked and couples that faced adversity. And that was, I say, I put my money on the right horse because this man, when he left this world, he left me. The very house that's being renovated now is the house that he mm. sat with the lawyers, did the uh, worked out land contract. He was the one that made sure that um, my body was in good shape. That, yeah, party, but do not get addicted. Um, yeah, you know, mm. have, have fun, but no, don't shit where you eat, right? Um, all these things, hard lessons for, for a young know-it-all like myself. Um, so he set me up well. That was my, um, it's one of the best decisions in my life. Next up, in episode 40, I speak with Pulitzer Prize-winning poet and writer Jericho Brown. In that episode, he spoke in part about how love teaches him to enjoy the intricacies of life while inspiring him to love himself. I love talking about love. I mean, I love love. (laughs) I love being in love. I love falling in love. I love the whole thing. It's like one of my favorite things. Do you know what I'm saying? Um... I don't know. And I, I like that feeling. And so, I mean, one of the things that it teaches me is how to enjoy a feeling, you know, and um, how a feeling is indeed a real thing. Do you know what I mean? You know, like, you know, Dario, when you're cuddling with somebody, it's you, you're like, what is this? Like, I cannot get out of the bed. Nothing is happening. You are laying in the bed touching a person and a person is touching you. But you feel like you're doing it. Like, do you know what I mean? When you're doing that, you don't even have to be talking. When you're doing that, you feel like you feel like you're doing something. You're making something. You're building something. You know what I mean? You're laying in the bed. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I think, um, I don't know. So maybe that's what it's taught me, that feelings are, are things, that they're real. Um and therefore, it's uh, given me some respect for my own feeling and for other people's feeling, even when their feeling is, um, even when there's no reason or need for their feeling, even when their feeling comes from some uh, weird imagination. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, so, and I think maybe falling in love taught me that. It, I mean, it's also taught me um, that, that I'm indeed capable of what I'm afraid of. You know, that I, I can, that uh, that there's, you know, the, for me at least, one of the wonderful things about being in love is that it gives me the opportunity to pay attention to myself in a different way. You know what I mean? So that I'm not, um, so I'm not mistreating somebody. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, I mean, it pushes me sort of to the, uh, the absolute limit of consideration because I want the absolute limit of consideration <laughs> back. Do you know what I mean? Um, it makes me crazy. I love feeling crazy. <laughs> like, I love the fact that when I'm in love, I'm getting all this other stuff done, but I don't, I don't feel that other stuff as much. You know what I mean? Because I got somewhere What's to What's the be. other stuff? 
oh, you know, teaching my classes, writing an essay for this or that assignment or um, mowing the lawn or (laughs) washing the dishes. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, those things, you know, if I'm in love, I'm like, okay, are y'all okay? Y'all good? Y'all good? All right. Gotta go. Do you You know what I'm saying? I'm out. You know, I'm like, let me do this very well and efficiently because I got to go. Do do you understand what I'm saying? Um, Yeah, I mean, and then the other wonderful thing about it is I do think that for me, at least, it offers me a chance to uh, to take care of myself in ways that I don't take care of myself enough when I'm not. In love, you know, um, and what I mean by that is there's a lot of doing absolutely nothing that goes on when you're in love, and uh, I don't have enough time that I'm doing absolutely nothing. So that feeling, you know, like, um, mm-hmm. you know, if I binge watch. I'm thinking about binge watching Succession. My friends keep telling me to watch it. So I'm thinking about that. Right. You know, doing that with a person feels like you're doing something like y'all did. We did that. You know, you gained an experience together. You gained a memory together. Do you do you understand what I'm saying? Um, doing that by yourself sort of feels like, uh, should I be doing this? Do, do you know what I mean? I, it shouldn't feel that way, but it does. Do you know? And that's a lot of hours. Do, do you follow what I'm saying? Um, so, yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, that's what I, I mean. I think that's one. That's some of the stuff that I learned from being in love. Now we're going back to episode 47 with Arthur and chef David Zilber, where he shares the joys in fermentation and schools us on the value in falling head over heels with the process. In thinking about time and in thinking about the, the, the allowing of process to take place, right? The allowing of it, not the forcing or the need to regiment, but the allowing, like what, like how do we how do we carry some of these slow practices like into our everyday lives like into our homes right how do we how can we use these processes to shift our everyday living um i i really recommend you do it I, I recommend falling in love with a fermentation recipe and then missing it when you finish it. And then realizing that you either had to plan to have it, like just nail a recipe for like a simple pickle. If you like cucumber pickles, if you, if you can't eat a sandwich without a crunchy pickle, like skewered through the top, like me, um, just find a good recipe for pickles. They're, they're so simple. And any pickle you make yourself, once you nail it, is like so unspeakably better than any pickle you could buy in a store. Um, you have to fall in love with it to have it affect you. And it's easy to fall in love with. That's the good part. But once you do, you'll realize that it's like, oh, wow, shit, like this takes time. And I can't have my cake and eat it too. Like I can't have finished the last pickle in the fridge and just want another one and just like go and get it. No, you have to like, like go to the, go to the grocer, go to the farmer's market, go get your fresh pickle, then come back and then wait a week. And then like wait another week for it to get really good in the fridge and then enjoy it. That's about, that's what I'm talking about, about like tuning into biological processes beyond 
the instant notification, you know? That's about bringing the outside world, the, 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 the timescales of nature indoors. And it's probably one of the easiest ways to do that. I mean, houseplants are cute and all, and I've, Lord knows I have a lot of them, but I think fermentation is more instructive um, because you, you, have to, you, you have to meet it where it is. Next up, we visit our most recent conversation in episode 56 with award-winning poet laureate Rita Dove. In this episode, I ask Rita, what does love allow for? And she shares how love powers her imagination. And, and I also ask it because in reading your, your, your work, I'm like, this, this is a woman who's been outside. This is a woman who has been out here like in these streets and enjoying every minute of it, right? Like you touch the, the highs, the lows, like, and love, like love and like mm. the desire for love and like what love like allows for, like what does love allow for you? Ah. Love allows everything. Love allows the possibility for, yes, all of the cheesy stuff, you know, touching other people and all that. But it even opens, it allows us to become something wilder and greater than than we can even imagine. And it also allows me to deal with... um, the hatred because I'm not going to let someone else's ideas of limitation, limiting me or, or, or imagining that out of their fears or whatever to imagine that, that whole groups of people or classes should not exist. As our final episode of 2022 is coming to an end, we spotlight five responses to the final question we ask our guest. What do you imagine for the future? We will hear from, well, me, yours truly, the IBI founder, um, Dario Kelmis, artist and designer, a Grammy award-winning singer and songwriter Estelle, award-winning creative director and stylist June Ambrose, food writer and entrepreneur Stephen Satterfield, and we close today's episode with a powerful message on love, humanity, and justice from computer scientist Timnit Gebru. Because once you realize that the things that I was born into do not have to stay this way, just like one person at one time designed this building, I can be the person to dream a new dream. Wow. Yeah. And then, then the question is, what are you dreaming and who are you dreaming it for? Um, what is the world that you imagine for the future, right? Um, how are you creating or dismantling um, seemingly oppressive or just generally not functional design frameworks. Um, and so Estelle, uh, if you had everything at your behest, um, yeah. <laughs> all the, all the power in the world, what is mm-hmm. the world 
that you imagine for the future? I would like people to be at better harmony with themselves, just off and across the board. It doesn't have to be so stark. It doesn't have to be so black and white. It doesn't have to be so extreme. Nothing has to be that extreme. There is a way that we can all peacefully exist. You don't have to have so far of an opinion about something that, you know, that nothing else exists. I Like, to me, that kind of squashes a lot of the problems. War, uh, racism, um, differences in people's opinions on people's personal views of themselves. It's so one thing can exist along with the other. That is literally what life is. Death exists with life. Breathing exists with not breathing. You, you take turns. Your breath goes in and out of your body. Like it all exists together. Like there is space for everything and everyone. So if I had a power, it would be some metaphysical shit like that. <laughs> but also <laughs> I would like, <laughs> I would like for everybody to like, have a have a decent living wage and be able to get all the things that they want. Like I just want people to have the material things they want, they want and that they deserve, and also people to to for people to be to live with each other and coexist. I really coexist in a nice way, not just coexist, coexist in a way that is nice and full of love. You know, you can have a hearty spirit and debate with someone and not feel like their life isn't worth being here. You know, like, like you can, you can do that. It, it happens millions of times every single day across the world. It doesn't have to be extreme. And, and I say that, to, like I said, wars wouldn't happen. Uh, it, you know, there would be a lot of other things that would be uh, taken care of per se. You know, so that's, that's where I'd be. I just want everyone to have a living wage, a really good, stable wage base level for living and be able to springboard off of that for their lives and also better harmony mentally, emotionally, physically for the rest of the world. That's, those would be my main two things. If you had everything at your behest, what is the world you imagine for the future? Um, just some, you know, equality in a real, not sense of a quota check the box way, but in a real normalizing the idea of us feeling inclusive. It not being a thing, but it just being. Um, I wish that, that when you are considered for a job or considered for an opportunity, it's not based on who you, who they feel that you relate to or what box you check or what, but just because you're good at what you do and that you, that the opportunity is something you had worked for. I still think today we are still checking boxes. We're still being seen as there's a color and quota and, you know, race is still being, is very, very compartmentalized. Um, I look forward to the day that it's just, we get to live amongst each other, you know, that, Indian movies aren't just for Indians and, you know, Spanish movies. You know, it just, just feels like we normalize the inclusivity in a sense because we have these inclusive moments, but we're still putting them in particular boxes. So how inclusive is it? If you're only, you're, you've partnered with me to speak to this audience, not speak to the audience that really needs to get to know me and us to break through that. 
you know, those stereotypes. And that's because of, and the stereotypes are based on ignorance. So in order for us to know each other, I shouldn't be, my sisters and brothers know me. I should be speaking to the other side so they can understand and get to know me and normalize that. And we're still compartmentalizing marketing and everything. I think that that affects everything. So I, I look forward to living in a world where, and also I think with the pandemic, um, we're, we've learned to be a little bit, we've adjusted a little bit to caring about other people other than ourselves, just a little bit. Um, and we realized what the message there was, like, you know, um, some people missed the message and some people totally got it. Um, I totally got it. Um, so I look forward, to, I, I, I love when every day feels like a Sunday, you know, where you say, you check on your neighbor, you know, where you feel like, where church is where you're sitting, you know, it's where you walk, it's where you talk, you know, that to me is a religion that everyone should subscribe to, caring for others and the people around them and being kind and courteous and giving. And giving could be simply a word. Good morning. Good evening. You look beautiful. How are you feeling? These are little priceless things that we all have taken for granted, but rediscovered during a time when we were asked to really check ourselves and reconnect. And we were all isolated and we would check on each other. We were calling and I'm thinking of you. Normalize that. Let's continue that tradition. That's what I'm hopeful for. That people don't just check on me on Instagram, that they actually <coughs> check on me and say, hey, I was thinking about you on my mind. I know, you know, just little, little things. That's all. What is the world that you imagine for the future? Um, the world that I imagine is, um, will be the same as the world in the past, as long as it's inhabited with humans, the, the hierarchical needs of people, um, I think will endure, I think for better and for worse, humans are going to keep acting like humans and things will keep getting better and keep getting worse. And if you had everything at your behest, what would be the world that you would imagine for the future? Oh, in my own imagination? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I'm uh, interested in that one. <laughs> oh. Um, just that, um, just, just liberation. I mean, I, I think I would love to live in a world where people were truly free, where they felt... Um, that there was space for them in the world. They felt unencumbered, not burdened by um, labor and, um, you know, negative stories around who they are um, and instead felt free um, and unencumbered to pursue their own curiosities and their own joy. Like that would be a very free world to live in. Um, what is the world that you imagine for the future? Oh man, you know, I imagine, honestly, it's extremely simple. Um, I imagine a future 
where people in marginalized communities can imagine a future as I imagine a future where people in marginalized communities have the space, the resources, the mental capacity, because they're not constantly, you know, uh, handling that um, racist email or that look or that whatever that, you know, all the little they're not little things. I remember Ruha said microaggression for whom it's not micro, right? Um, but all of those things that sap your energy, I imagine a, a time when people can can have that space back um, to themselves so that we can imagine, we can have joy, we can um, spend time together, we can um, dance, you know, <laughs> sing, we can um, think about a future where it's not a constant battle to just exist. Um, so that's, that's the future I imagine. Um, and I'm glad that you have a whole institution dedicated for it. <laughs> I love the name of your institution. And, and I think that's key. That's key because we can't create a different um, reality, a different future, uh, unless we have time to imagine. Thank you all so much for joining us today on this special edition and our last episode of the season. We will return next year. And although we're going away for just a little while, feel free to revisit your favorite episodes and listen to episodes you haven't had the opportunity to listen to. Visit us over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination and tell us the world that you imagine for the future. Be sure to check out our portal to Black Thought from throughout the diaspora over at blackimagination.com, and you can now subscribe and watch full episodes on our YouTube channel, The Institute of Black Imagination. As our good sister Bell Hooks says, one of the best guides to how to be self-loving is to give ourselves the love we are often dreaming about receiving from others. Stay curious and keep dreaming.